Uh, well, ladies and gentlemen, I think it's uh, uh, time to start our session on China and the world, uh, challenges and change. Um, as you, we heard from the foreign minister, he put a lot of emphasis on the rapid change that's taking place in the first decade of this century, which has uh, in many ways transformed the world and it's also brought China very much to the forefront and it faces challenges both within and without. That is to say, both the connections between what is done inside China and relationships with the outside world have become much more uh, intermeshed. And uh, in that sense, it raises a whole variety of new kinds of issues and, and challenges. And uh, to address these issues, we have uh, two very distinguished scholars who are very well known internationally and very well known, of course, in China itself. Um, I won't go into their biographies because you have that on your program. Um, our first speaker is uh, Professor Westad, whom I've had the good fortune of knowing for many years. He is, uh, I think, primarily best known for his work on um, the period of the Cold War and also on the uh, early years of China's relationships, or rather the Communist Party's relationship with the Soviet Union. Um, before the establishment of the People's Republic and shortly after. And recently, he has been uh, editor of a huge volume of the Cambridge University History of the Cold War. And then to respond to him, we have uh, Professor Wang Jisri from uh, Peking University. He uh, is a special friend of the LSE. Uh, because he is the other side of a joint master's program uh, between the uh, uh, LSE and uh, Peking University. And he, uh, uh, every summer, he also teaches at the LSE. And so um, uh, we therefore have people who can really address the perspectives, both, as it were, from looking at China from the inside and also looking at China from the outside. So um, I won't take up any more of your time at this point and I'll call on Professor Westad to come and uh, address everyone. Good morning. I'm very pleased to be here in Beijing. I have a lot of friends here. Back in Beijing, I've got many old friends here. I'm looking forward to getting new friends uh, in the days that we are together for the LSE uh, Asia Forum in Beijing. Uh, it's a particular pleasure for me to be introduced by Professor Yehuda, 
who I regard as one of my main teachers, although he was never actually my teacher when I was at LSE. Uh, he is one of the giants within this field. And it's also a special pleasure for me to share the podium today with a very, very old friend of mine, uh, Professor Wang Yisi of Beida, Peking University, where he runs the School of International Studies, which is the main partner institution, not just in China, but globally, for LSE Ideas, the LSE's new Center for International Affairs, Diplomacy and Strategy that I help run in London. Now, I'm a historian, as Michael mentioned, uh, even though most of my comments today will deal with contemporary international affairs in various forms. But I do like to look at developments in a fairly long perspective. Um, and my comments today certainly will be influenced by that. Uh, LSE Ideas, the center that I run, is very much influenced by that kind of thinking, to understand the present in light of the past, and hopefully also to get to know a little bit more at least about how we can think, how we may think about the, about the future. And I started by asking myself, when I was preparing for this lecture, if historians 50 years from now uh, will look back at the late 20th and the early 21st century, what will they see as the most important set of events? Will it be the end of the Cold War and the way we negotiated ourselves out of the threat of a nuclear cataclysm? Will it be the discovery and the mapping of the human genome, our understanding of how we really are created and work as humans? Um, or will it be our surprisingly slow realization of the dangers of global warming? There are a number of issues that will compete, I think, in my view, uh, for uh, the title of the most important events of the late 20th and early 21st century. To me, the far most important development has been the rise of Asia, and particularly of China. And this rise has restored what in many ways is a normal situation in human affairs going back to two millennia before the 1880s, roughly when Asia was by far the most productive part of humanity. The short period between the 1880s and the 1980s was really a kind of blip, as was mentioned earlier today, a short wave um, in which first Europe and then North America came to replace Asia as the center for human productive capability. That situation has now changed back to the way it was in 2,000 years before 1880. And that's a big story. And China's rise to prominence in international affairs is, within my field, the big story of the past two decades. It may be part of a systemic shift, as happened in the transition from a British-dominated to a US-dominated world system in the 1920s and, and 1930s. And this raises a number of very important questions. Because as we will know from history, these kinds of transitions are mostly non-peaceful. They're very troubled, not necessarily because of conflicts between rising powers and declining powers, but because of the instability they create within the international system as such. The 1920s and the 1930s, my friends, were not happy periods for humankind overall. And some historians and political scientists are postulating that one reason for that 
was that as Britain's power was declining, the United States was not yet ready to replace it as the main power in international affairs. It's almost like what we were talking about finance earlier today. There was no regulatory body. There was no power that took responsibility for the international system as such. Is that a situation that is similar to what we may be facing today? And in that case, the perspectives are not particularly uh, bright. Now, generally speaking, there are two versions of how China will behave as a great power, as it, as it rises. Uh, one emphasizes instability because of the factors that I've already outlined. Because China will come to replace the United States as the main center of international power, and conflict would follow from that displacement, to exaggerate it uh, broadly. The other one, the version that we heard from Minister Yang early this morning, is about China becoming gradually integrated into the existing world system, created first by Britain and then taken over by the United States, and that China becomes a stakeholder in that system, that it comes to represent China's interests and gradually also China's values, as well as those of, of the West. So these are two very different perspectives. What I'm going to look at today are issues mostly connected to the Asian region and China's role within the Asian region that link up to the middle-term perspective, the sort of interim situation, the situation five or possibly ten years down the road that we at Ideas are very interesting, interested in analyzing. Um, it seems to me, and I'd be very interested to hear Professor Wang's and Professor Yehuda's comments on this, that China today is an uncertain great power. Um, it is one that, on the one hand, wishes to conform to the international system, to be integrated into it. And on the other hand, it does not wish to be integrated into a system that itself has not created, and that it sees in many ways as being stacked against some of China's core interests. And this is a, this is a difficult balance. And the next five to ten years are going to be crucial for how China orients itself. Now, that's no, not only up to China, as I'm going to explore in the continuation, but it certainly also depends on what happens here and the development of young people's thinking about their country and about its future and how it should place itself. That's how a grand strategy is developed, not just from above, but also from below, in line with the kind of thinking that people within the country themselves develop. Let me first comment a little bit on the economic situation, because the economy these days is crucial for international affairs. And no one who tries to understand the international situation today can disregard what is happening in the economic sphere. And for China in particular, uh, where so much of the growth has actually been based on economic growth, uh, it is certainly something that needs to be taken very seriously indeed. I agree with what was said earlier on, that the stimulus package that was introduced in, in response to the most recent crisis in China has worked well and may help show a way out of a crisis which has, at least in part, in my view, been created by different forms of unfettered capitalism. Uh, China has very clearly signaled that it wants to have limitations in terms of how the market can operate in the sector that creates crisis, that creates systemic crisis of this kind. 
And I think that is clearly a good thing for China, and I think it's a good thing for the world. But on the other hand, there have been signs very recently. I'm not so preoccupied with the, the bubble aspects that were discussed earlier on. I think the government uh, has ways of overcoming that. But more the, the switch in a broader strategic sense from a stimulus approach to dealing with the economy over on to a new form of export-led growth. And my big worry is whether that will happen too early in China. That China, in a way, starts behaving as if the world already was out of the crisis. And that the rest of the world, and particularly the developed countries, can help pull China's economy further up by going back to the strategy that worked so incredibly well for China in the 1990s and in the early 2000s. That, I think, would be a dangerous line. It would be very similar to some of the mistakes that Japan made in terms of its own past, and it's something that I think China should be warned against. Now, by far the most important relationship in China's foreign relations has to do with the United States. Uh, the United States is by far the most important power uh, that uh, China is working with and sometimes against. And this is something that will be the situation for China uh, five or ten years into the future as well. There's very little that can be done about this. I think the United States will still be the predominant power when those ten years have uh, elapsed. Now, in this relationship, there is a lot of uncertainty. And the main uncertainty is connected to how well the United States and China are willing and able to cooperate with regard to solving regional problems within China's larger region. There are broader international issues at stake as well, but I don't have time to go through those now, and we can discuss them afterwards if we'd like to. But let me just have a look at how it looks with regard to the region. By far the most important problem that China and the United States will have to work together to solve, in my view, has to do with the situation on the Korean Peninsula. The situation in Korea, because of what is happening in the North, is in my view the most dangerous situation that we face now within this region, and possibly on a global scale. There have been very promising signs over the last few years of the United States and China being willing to work together in order to contain the difficulties that could come out of a collapse of the North Korean regime, or even under certain circumstances, its continued existence. But much more is needed than that. Uh, China needs to work multilaterally. It needs to work within the region. It also needs to work with the United States. And I think if the perspective on looking at core crisis within East Asia, first and foremost Korea, can overcome the various petty disputes that at the moment exist between the United States and China, much would be achieved, both in terms of the future direction of that crucial relationship, but also from the American side in understanding that China is capable of putting a broad strategy first in terms of its relationship with the United States, rather than concentrating on more specific and, and less important issues that exist at the moment. Within the region itself, in terms of other powers, in my view, China's by far most important relationship is with Japan. And this may also be the biggest challenge that China is facing within its own region. Not necessarily in terms of foreign policy. In foreign policy, there aren't really all that many conflicts between China and Japan. There are some. Uh, I would regard them as relatively small. If you look at these islands, they are not big ones. Um, 
But it's a matter of perception. And perceptions count in international affairs. Uh, each year when I visit China and Japan, I ask students in these countries about their view of each other. And every year when I've done that, these views have become more and more negative. Uh, I have friends who experienced the Japanese occupation of China and its disastrous effects. These people are far less hostile to Japan in general than people who were born in the 1980s and maybe now in the 1990s, who had no experience of that sort. Now, this is an issue that needs to be dealt with. And it needs to be dealt with in terms of people-to-people -people dialogues. It needs to be dealt with by the governments, not just here, but in Japan as well. Because there is a crucial strategic element in this, which cannot be overcome. That as long as China and Japan are not willing, not able, to work more closely together, the number one power in East Asia will not be China, and certainly not Japan. It will be the United States. So in other words, if China wants to return to what it sees as normality within its own region, placing China centrally at, in the middle, then its relationship to Japan has to be improved way beyond what most people have had a strategic vision to underline today. We also deal with um, the Southeast, uh, uh, with ASEAN and, and Southeast Asia, which I think shows some of the more positive aspects of Chinese foreign relations in a broad sense. I have been deeply impressed, and some people in the foreign ministry and in the trade ministry here should really be credited for that, with the ability that Chinese diplomacy has shown in working in an inventive, innovative way with their partners and neighbors in Southeast Asia. The problem here is more connected up to China's relationship to ASEAN as an organization than it is to individual issues with the Southeast Asian countries. I think China is still struggling, although it has made progress in that respect as well, of understanding what an integrational multilateral organization like ASEAN really is about. How does it function? And there is lots more that can be done on that, particularly within the ministries here, but also in general public opinion. And it be interesting to hear Professor Wang's view of this. This is something that China traditionally has not been particularly well equipped for handling. Um, and in order to deal with the future of Southeast Asia, doing it through the kind of uh, one to several cooperation that is now going on multilaterally and individually between China and ASEAN is the only way forward. One cannot anymore deal with Southeast Asia as a collection of individual states. It now has to go through the second most successful regional integrationist organization that we have in the world, which is ASEAN. Then finally, because I want to be brief uh, and, and have time for discussion afterwards and for Professor Wang to respond uh, to what I have to say, let me deal with the issue of Taiwan. Now, again, much has been achieved uh, in terms of the relationship between the People's Republic of China and Taiwan. I think there is still much that can be achieved in the future. I'm particularly glad to see the opening up of much more travel between the two sides than ever existed in the past, and much more in terms of not only economic and trade exchange, but also tourism and, and political exchanges of various kinds, and this is very important. But in the longer run, in the strategic sense, there has to be major adjustments made, both on the side of Beijing and on the side of Taipei, to avoid this in a situation where other crises may emerge. 
again become a hotspot of conflict. And how is that done? I think it should be done first and foremost to try to connect the various parts of the economies, the various parts of different kinds of uh, exchanges much more closely together in a systemic sense, to let the two parts of China grow together, uh, rather than emphasizing very narrow political and diplomatic interest. That's what is in China's best interest as a whole. And that's the only thing that will prevent the kind of crisis that we have seen also very recently in the relationship between the two sides. Now, it is clear to me that the perspectives that I've been discussing have not only to do with foreign policy, with grand strategy, with international affairs. It also has to do with the domestic developments within China. The way the world sees China is not only affected by its foreign policy. It's also affected by the image of China, what is happening within the country itself. And there are two images competing. On the one hand, the enormous progress that China has made, which is the envy of the world, uh, the progress uh, that has helped catapult four or five hundred million people out of poverty, uh, the way of dealing with the recent economic crisis, both in the 90s and in the 2000s. Very impressive. But on the other hand, there is the image of China as a society that does not allow full freedom of organization, that does not allow full freedom of speech, that try to limit the access to information of its citizens. Now, some people would argue that compared to what I just described as successes, this is a minor part. But it is a part that matters, because a lot of people, particularly in Europe and in North America, but also increasingly elsewhere, are judging China by the same standards as they're judging their own governments. This is an essential part of globalization in terms of ideas, concepts, and values. And on that score, China still has a lot that needs to be done in order to be seen as a power that links up with the rest of the world in a positive sense. So does China have a grand strategy for a new way of organizing the world, a new and better organized world, as my Chinese friends often like to put it? The answer, I think, so far is no. Um, while Westerners cannot imagine that a transition from a U.S. to a Chinese-dominated world system will not also mean a transition to a very different world system, China at the moment does not actually have a qualitatively new system to offer. Now, a severe regional crisis might lead Chinese leaders to think differently, but China's development needs and the structures of its economy mean that even when it does become a global power, it will want to operate within a system that, in my view, is not necessarily too dissimilar from the one that exists today. Overall, I think that is positive. But if it happens without a general discussion and debate about China's long-term aims with regard to the rest of the world within China, it's not necessarily that good. In order to be a successful global power, China needs to know what it wants. And it needs to want more, not just of resources and economic progress and of growth. It also needs to want more of a world in which Chinese values, China's distinct impact of the, on the world, take center stage. That's the kind of China that I hope to see in the future. I hope to be here to experience it with you. Thank you.
I must congratulate uh, Professor Westhart for this very comprehensive, all-round presentation of about China, and uh, he has made many, many shiny but probably also controversial points. If I responded to each of them, it might take more than one hour. So I would concentrate on several points and then uh, make myself clear. Uh, <clears throat> I think he started the presentation by describing what is the most important challenge to the, to the world and to China today. And what is the, in, 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 uh, in the Chinese concept, what is the uh, feature of the era, of the historical moment today? Uh, I think this is a very important topic for us to think about. But he also touched upon specific issues like China's economics and foreign relations, and finally, China's internal politics. So I will first uh, address a few uh, things and then come back to the larger picture. Domestic economics. Uh, I think he pointed out that uh, there is the tendency uh, for China to overemphasize export or uh, uh, infrastructure for short-term considerations while neglecting some long-term goals for China to reform itself. I think that is a very permanent uh, point. But I think China is moving in that direction when we emphasize a, a scientific outlook on development and change the, the, uh, the, uh, the production mode to, to give more, uh, to provide more uh, incentives to stimulate domestic uh, consumption, but it is a very daunting task, and it is related to some sensitive issues. Uh, whether uh, he, he did not mention that directly, but the renminbi exchange rate is uh, something in point. And about foreign policy, I think I agree with him that the U.S.-China relationship may be the most important relationship China is uh, maintaining with other countries. But this is not simply a bilateral relationship. It is a very comprehensive relationship involving other countries like Japan, like Southeast Asia, like Central Asia, uh, or, uh, Iran, and many other countries. So if we look at the United States, uh, China relations alone, we cannot provide a solution and a clue of what is going on. And so he described China's relationship North with North Korea. I think North Korea is very important to China, and now I think China is very interested in developing a very cooperative economic relationship with North Korea. The, the focus is on its domestic uh, stimulus and the, the, the livelihood of their people. I mean, China should avoid being condescending, but I think China should cooperate with North Korea to afford the benefits of both countries in developing their economy. And then that kind of behavior will help uh, stabilize the relationship, but the, not only the relationship, but also the domestic politics there in North Korea. And I think China will do nothing to 
to to uh, stimulate uh, any disturbance in that country. In uh, uh, but China will welcome uh, a, a su- successful North Korea, North Korean economy, and North Korean uh, political transition. Southeast Asia is a very important part of China's foreign policy. And uh, Professor Westhout pointed out that we have, a, uh, we have the tendency to emphasize uh, bilateral ties. Uh, and this is time to, for us to think more about uh, seeing ASEAN as a whole. I agree with that. But I also want to add that China should also look at, not only in Southeast Asia, but in other countries, the rise of a civil society. And it, uh, I had a conversation with uh, some Indonesian uh, colleagues a few days ago when they were coming to celebrate the 60th anniversary of the establishment of diplomatic relations between China and Indonesia. And I found out that they're very, they're very enthusiastic in talking about their domestic changes and the rise of civil society and democracy and other things. And uh, in looking at the world, China is not only in, should, should not only focus on state-to-state relationships, but also relationships with other countries, civil societies, NGOs, uh, and uh, non-government and and, uh, and congresses, and that is what we are trying to achieve. Uh, but the, uh, there are some weaknesses there, and. With Japan, I think one difference uh, uh, I want to emphasize between China and Japan is that we have somewhat different geostrategic visions of the region and of the world today. Uh, China is an Asian country. Uh, This is an Asia forum. And uh, what is my definition of Asia? Uh, I don't want to uh, to, to appear Sinocentric. But in my definition, Asia is China and its neighbors. <laughs> and if Japan's version of the, the uh, definition of Asia is Japan is its neighbors, then we are not talking too much about Western Asia, Central Asia, and South, South Asia. So uh, not many people I know Uh, in China are very enthusiastic about establishing an East Asian community, not because they they don't like Japan or they don't don't emphasize the importance of ASEAN and South Korea, but also also because, in my own mind, China has many, many other concerns, relationships with Pakistan, with India, with uh, uh, Afghanistan, which uh, uh, whose uh, president uh, was here a few days ago, uh, and probably is still here. So we have a very broad strategic vision to think about. Finally, uh, I think uh, Professor Westar talked about uh, whether China has a grand strategy or not. Uh, it's difficult to say because we don't usually use the word grand strategy to describe China's diplomacy or foreign relations. but. I thought uh, it through uh, many times. Uh, my definition of a grand strategy has three components. First, what are this country's core interests? Second, what are the external uh, threats 
to these core interests? And third, what are, uh, are the means and ways in dealing with uh, uh, the, the threats or in coping with the threats, external threats? Why I think about external threats? Because if we define the core interest, interest too loosely, then we lose the, the picture. Yesterday, I searched on the internet, and I, and I searched the wording, China's core interest. One thing that struck me was that the tobacco industry in China thought that uh, tobacco industry is the core interest of China. Uh, uh, may, may, maybe heavy smokers are happy about it, but I'm not, because I think core interests should involve something, some uh, things more important. Uh, and I think the official definition is China's sovereignty, security, and development. But which one is the most important to China? This is open to, to discussion. And then I think it is very important to see, as, as we see the larger picture, what are the, 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 the challenges to our core interests? Do they come from the United States, Japan, Europe, other countries? Or do they come from specific issue areas or functional areas like climate change, economic downturn, financial turbulence, uh, uh, environmental degradation, illegal immigration, uh, uh, and so on, uh, including uh, natural disasters. I think it must be the latter. The core interest to be defined along those lines. These will affect China's core interests, and that these would need, if we want to cope with them, we need international cooperation. We have to cooperate with the United States, Japan, Europe, Russia, India, and many other countries in coping with those challenges. And in that way, only in that way, can we safeguard China's core interest. Thank you very much. Uh, Professor Wang has to leave at 12.30 sharp, he has a plane to catch to go to Brussels. Um, so uh, I, um, I would like to, to give the opportunity to, uh, to you all to raise questions to him uh, before, before he leaves. But before I do so, um, I wonder whether you have any response to the issues that uh, Professor Wang has raised in his discussion of your presentation. I, I will be very brief, Michael, because uh, you, uh, in what is probably a sign of the times, has to leave for a flight to Brussels. Uh, if there's anything that underlines the power of uh, integrational multilateral organizations, it's that he has to go to Brussels. But you are also going to London, I think. No. No, you're not going to London. Well, there you see. Even, even, even more on the line, the point that I wanted to make. One, one quick remark with regard to the Japan issue, and I have a suspicion we may end up discussing that quite a bit. And this is one of the, one of the points where I do think there is, a, there is a tiny tad of a disagreement. I think that it is true 
as uh, Professor Wang is saying, that one way for China to deal with its difficulties with Japan is sort of to reduce them in terms of their overall significance. I think that is what you were sort of indicating. And I, I think there is something to be said for that approach. I do not think, however, that it will resolve problems in the longer run. I think uh, it might be a method of making some of the issues less acute, but it will not deal with the broader, more long-term issues, which, as I underlined in my lecture, I think are not so much connected to specific complications in international affairs, but to two peoples that increasingly have the back turned against each other um, in terms of perceptions. Um, and as I underlined in my lecture, I think these things matter. I mean, I think they, I think they matter greatly. Now, of course, there are issues connected to this. There are issues connected to history textbooks and to islands and to uh, issues of international trade, uh, technology, and often constant exchanges. But if it hadn't been for the perceptual issues, these kind of matters could have been regarded as relatively small. That was the point that I was trying to make. Well, uh, I think we run the risk of uh, treating Japan by uh, what you call benign neglect. Mm. I think Japan is the most, one of the most important partners of China. And I'm not a government spokesman, so I can violate uh, the, the political correctness a little bit. Uh, I think the most important country to China might be the United States first, mm. and then followed by Japan. Why? I have many reasons, but I cannot give all of them. Japan is the most important economic partner next to the United States. Uh, of course, if, if we talk about Europe, and Europe mm. as a whole is looming very large, mm. but we divide the role, the, the role into uh, separate states, and Japan is the second important partner, economic partner to China. And Japan also caused the most disastrous uh, history. In China, and so, to me, I think we have still have a lot to learn from Japan today. Not only the the economy; the economy is not in very good shape. Mm -hmm. But when we think about our scientific outlook on development, what is the, mm -hmm. a, a very relevant model? I will think about first Japan. Look at their environmental protection. Their, their society, which is very harmonious, in, at least in, in, in appearance, uh, but also I think Japan has managed its domestic stability quite successfully in the last uh, six or uh, seven decades. And Japan has played a very important role in stabilizing the uh, international uh, uh, financial situation. Uh, and uh, so I think also in controlling um, the, uh, some, some climate change effects, Japan is, is taking the lead in the world. And the United States should learn from Japan as well. So I think that the, the strengthening of relationship with Japan will serve China's best interest. I cannot say that Japan is not important. I simply said that Japan has a different uh, geopolitical focus than China has. Um, I would just like to add uh, one word uh, on the issue of 
multilateralism and on Japan-China. Uh, multilateralism in, in Asia is uh, of a very particular kind. One has to remember that most of the countries in Asia are, have either uh, new political systems since the end of the uh, Second World War or indeed in some cases are simply new countries altogether. They are therefore uh, very jealous of their independence, very jealous of their sovereignty, and it's wrong to think of the multilateralism there as uh, building towards something similar in Europe. The, uh, therefore, uh, in approaching uh, things like the East Asian community or even ASEAN, which has been in existence for such a long time, we have to be very careful to recognize that these are much looser kinds of organizations. The, in many respects, they embody aspirations, to, if you like, to a sense of family, more than a sense of um, rules-based uh, obligations. And in that sense, uh, real politics still takes place bilaterally. Uh, as the countries of ASEAN themselves have uh, different senses of threat. Uh, they uh, also have many differences amongst themselves. Mm. So, um, the, if we look also at the great power relationships in this region, and we have to recognize that really all the major powers of the world are focused in many respects on this region. This includes obviously the United States, Japan, China, Russia, uh, we could say possibly India as well. All the new nuclear powers that have emerged since the end of the Cold War are in this part of the world. I think Professor Wang said earlier his vision of Asia is China plus its neighbors, um, which is a very Chinese way of putting it. I'm not sure that the, that the Indian view would uh, go along with that. And the Indians, after all, do think of themselves as Asians. Uh, and Asia, of course, is a European construct. So how people think of themselves and their identities and perceptions, as, as Professor Wester pointed out, is very, very important. But I would add this issue, I think, that perceptions are not fixed. Even if you look at Sino-Japanese relations, perceptions have changed a great deal. I, uh, the first, as I understand it, the first museum that was built in China, concentrating on the war of, as it's called there, the war of resistance to Japan, was not built till the 1980s, something like 40 years after the end of the war. And since China and Japan have improved their relationships, in 2006, at least if you go by opinion polls, attitudes in China about Japan have begun to change in quite significant ways, and I think it's gradually being reflected in Japan as well. Uh, so I think we're dealing with very sort of dynamic, uh, rapidly changing uh, situations, and uh, uh, they're, in a way, the uh, because of the financial crisis, we've had a number of long-standing issues brought to a head, which is challenging 
uh, to each of the major countries as well as to their relationships with each other. And in, in that context, it makes the whole idea of a grand strategy that much more complicated. Mm. But I've taken up more time than I should have done. So let me call on uh, you to raise questions. Now we have uh, till a quarter to one, and bearing in mind that Professor Wang has to leave in about 10 minutes, or just under 10 minutes, may I suggest that to start with, at any rate, your questions are directed to him. Um, let me start with the gentleman at the back who already has the microphone. Yes, thank you, Michael. Uh, I think uh, the point that you're making about essentially political culture being rather different in Asia as opposed to the West sort of points to a question about which I'd like to put to both speakers. Uh, my name is Munir Majid. I'm from Malaysia. Yeah. Uh, about whether or not, far from asking if China can adjust and change and evolve into a great power in the international system as we have it now, whether or not there can be an adjustment by the status quo powers in the platform of intellectual thought, whether it be in international relations, uh, economic relations, financial relations, and of course, most importantly, international political system. I think what the crises that we have come across has depicted mm. is that there, is, there has been a failure of the basis of the uh, you know, international system today. And there is a different interpretation of how it should operate and whether that shift can take place in Western intellectual thought to accommodate the change that we are talking about. Thank you. I, I cannot say whether Westerners can adjust. Of course they can. <laughs> you, know, you know as much about the West as I do. Uh, I, 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 I well, you meet enough of them, so you should have some idea. I think they are adjusting quite, uh, uh, quite fundamentally, in a way, uh, to the new reality here. Um, but there are different opinions in the West. Some are saying China is rising up. It will bring about uh, tremendous changes in the international system. Uh, whether it, it will bring about a lot uh, in the international economic system is different from whether China will challenge the, the outside, world, uh, outside world in a political and strategic way that is subject to de debate. And uh, I, I did, I could also spend. Um, many minutes to talk about this because I just finished a, a long um, project uh, on world political developments in the last 30 years. Mm. And the finding, in, in, in very, to, to be very simply, is that the world is uh, moving in the direction of more democratization, but also more pluralism. And pluralism that, and, and democracy go hand in hand. And there are different uh, types of democracy. Uh, and there are also common values shared by many countries and all, all the people together. Uh, all the concepts are still very relevant, like human rights, like uh, uh, 
uh, uh, rule of law, democracy. But they are, they are seeking different types and different interpretations. And the world is also seeking justice. And justice is, is, is lacking in many parts of the world, including mm. in many parts in China. And so we are sharing a lot of values together uh, that we sometimes neglect. Michael, if if I could comment very briefly on this uh, uh, excellent question by Dr. Murin Majid, who is a distinguished visiting fellow in in LSE Ideas and the driving force behind our Southeast Asia International Affairs Program, um, and also to Yusu's response. I do think that Professor Wang got it exactly right. I do think that on a lot of issues that have to do with how people want to lead their their lives, um, views are not necessarily all that different inside China and in other parts of this region and other parts of the world. But the constellations are sometimes different. The origin of the ideas is sometimes very, very different. But they come out in forms that have much in common. And this gives me great hope for a peaceful future in a broader sense. But there is one precondition, and that is that these various approaches are able to play their way out freely within the societal settings that they actually have. Uh, This is not about democracy. I mean, it's not about political participatory democracy. But it is about engaging actively in the whole plurality of human ways of thinking that exists within different societies. That's crucial. That's an essential element of the kind of peaceful exchange that we want to see. Not a specific model, not a specific system of state. Yes, the gentleman in front here, in the front row. Uh, Thank you very much. Uh, Sergey Rachinko, University of Nottingham in Nimbo, China. Uh, I have a question for both speakers. Uh, Chinese foreign ministry officials and also Chinese leaders, including uh, uh, Xi Jinping most recently on his visit to Moscow, have praised Sino-Russian relationship as the model for what China's relationship with the outside world should be. Now, let me be a little bit politically incorrect here and uh, imagine that perhaps the most pleasing um, aspect of this model relationship for China is that Russia increasingly defers to China, is willing to learn from China, and uh, allows for China's moral superiority, as it were. It, there's no question anymore who's the laudaga in this relationship between Russia and China. Uh, now, if this is the model of China's relationship with the outside world, I wonder if uh, this may not be a hard sell to other countries, including <laughs> India and Japan, not to mention the United States. Thank you. I know you have to go, I, I, so perhaps I you can answer it very quickly. I, I don't think uh, China, or many Chinese, see themselves as a laudaga to, to Russians. Uh, well, this is a, a, a young country, and uh, I mean, in, 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 in its polity, in its, uh, in its political tradition. And China has learned a great deal from Russia and also from the former Soviet Union, for, for, for better or for worse. But uh, uh, I think Russia looms very large in China's overall strategic mm-hmm. thinking, and uh, I think we should caution against any kind of um, arrogance or, or, or looking down upon other countries in that regard. So that will, 
If that serves the best in, uh, interest of uh, Russia and China, that will pr- provide a model. Otherwise, yeah. it will not. Thank you. But I have That's to leave. Professor, Professor Wang has to leave us now. Safe journey. So, um, unfortunately, we've been reduced, but nevertheless, uh, I think we still have much food for thought from the presentation of Professor Westad. So, uh, and I'm sure Michael has some has some questions that he would like to ask me as well. So this well, could be yes. lively, even if Professor Wang has left. Uh, nevertheless, I'd like to call on uh, <laughs> the audience if they are issues. Okay. Well, um, I wonder if I could invite you to expand a little further on the feasibility of China developing what you call a grand strategy. Because uh, it seems to me that um, uh, apart from the issue of thinking strategically about developments in the outside world, China itself is facing uh, an enormous problem of, of change, mm. of shifting from the current mode of economic development into something that is going to encourage much more household consumption. Now, that is going to entail uh, not just economic change, but enormous sort of political and social change. And this is occurring at a time in which... Uh, I think the country is only really beginning to come to grips with the enormous social changes that the rapid economic development has occurred. Mm. One only has to think about the nature of the Chinese family compared to how it was uh, 30 years ago. Uh, We also have to think in terms of how uh, an issue that has been raised recently within China Mm. about household registration and the mobility and responsibility that, uh, that is, has to be taken towards the migrant laborers who have been in some many ways at the heart of China's development. So in focusing on these very challenging domestic changes and wondering whether the current political system is sufficiently flexible to handle this, aren't you asking too much to, to, uh, to call for a grand strategy at this time? Well, Michael, let me start by saying that my definition of grand strategy is actually very close to Professor Wang Yusuf's. Part of the reason for this is that we have both been involved in a project uh, over the last few years where we want to look at issues relating to grand strategy in terms of China's political development. Um, we didn't start with the same definition, but we certainly moved towards it. And as you heard, it is a broad and very inclusive definition, uh, touching indirectly, at least, on many of the issues that Professor Yehuda just brought up. I think the answer to your question, Michael, really, is that China has to. I mean, China doesn't really have a choice with regard to these things. Um, because if you are not capable of thinking strategically in the intermediate term, what I discussed in my lectures being the next five or ten years, you will really be at a huge disadvantage in terms of developing policy. 
Because one essential element of strategy is to try to bring these various strands, these various traits together and try to look at them in terms of how they can be resolved or they can be dealt with vis-a-vis each other. And that's a question, first and foremost, in my view, for China, about priorities. I mean, where are China's priorities going to be during that next five to ten year period? I have no doubt whatsoever that China's main priorities are going to continue to be domestic. They're going to be within the country itself. But that's also part of a grand strategy approach that one definitely needs to think about what are then the consequences of these domestic choices vis-a-vis China's international posture. Um, The choice, as you mentioned, with regard to demographics uh, are essential. Uh, With regard to mobility are essential. I mean, the first we lead to uh, oversimplify grossly, but I think basically correctly, to a China that will have one of the most rapidly aging populations of any countries uh, within the next five to ten year period. And the second one is already leading to unfettered urbanization with megalopolises that are of a size that most people thought of as unthinkable half a generation ago. This influences China to a very high extent in terms of the outlook for the future. Uh, And it's something that is going to have a definite impact on China's foreign policy as well. Uh, Well, I would argue that um, in some ways China has a very successful strategy in the sense that China has been the main beneficiary of an American-led globalization. And that even now, uh, Chinese are not really challenging that. And they are continuing to hope to be beneficiaries of the public goods that the Americans, in a sense, are providing. And that this has established a framework within which the Chinese have been able to expand their commercial interests overseas to, uh, to develop uh, not only uh, access to resources, but also to uh, provide Chinese forms of aid, which has uh, been successful. So in some ways you could say this is a variant of the early reform process of crossing the river by feeling the stones. And maybe, given all the uncertainties, that makes sense. But I think there's a question by a gentleman over there. Thank you. Please say who you are. And then. Robert Gibson from Hong Kong. What changes in international diplomacy would make a repeat of the failure at Copenhagen last December less likely? Uh, we heard the Chinese foreign minister this morning talking about all countries having equal rights. In Copenhagen, we experienced a UN process of trying to get unanimous agreement amongst over 190 countries. And a country like Tuvalu, with perhaps 13,000 people, uh, causing significant disruption. What changes would make that less likely to happen again? I think there are two fields in which which changes are important uh, on these particular issues. The first one is through a strengthening of the discussions that go on between the larger countries and conglomerations of countries of various forms and sizes before the negotiations are, are begun in, a, in, a, in, in an acute sense. I think part of the problem with the, the Copenhagen process was the process, or, or the lack of process in many ways, in terms of finding out where it was possible to find agreement 
between the major players before the acute part of the conference or of the negotiations, pre-conference -negoci pre negotiations actually began. So I do think that that is a very essential part of avoiding uh, these kinds of problems in the future or trying to avoid them. Secondly, with regard to China's particular role, I do think it is very important for China on issues that have to do with climate change especially, that it realizes that it cannot uh, move in two directions at the same time. Of course China has to look after its conditions for growth. There's no doubt about that. That is part of what any government would do, particularly a government of a country as big as, as China. Now, on the other hand, it's also very clear that China has an international responsibility to deal with one of the biggest challenges that we are facing today and to do so effectively from its own, from its own standpoint. Is it impossible to connect and to combine these two positions? Absolutely not. But China will have then to make a whole set of choices about priorities. And these priorities are primarily domestic. They are not international. Uh, they are linking the kind of issues that Professor Wang and I were talking about earlier on together with an international strategy. And again, I come back to the, to the importance of broadening the dialogue within China itself on these kinds of issues. China will be much more successful and much more balanced internationally in terms of its approach to issues such as climate change if there is a broader resonance within China itself of the specific Chinese priorities that would lead into such a policy. Yes. I'm Kenny Fly um, with the uh, LSE alumni in Hong Kong. Um, I want to uh, make a follow-up question to uh, the question raised by a gentleman earlier on um, Sino-Russian relationship, because well, apparently that's um, Russia, no doubt, despite um, you know, in relative economic terms, it's not a, a, one of the biggest economies, but, mm. but nevertheless, it is one of the great world power uh, on the world stage. But from a Russian point of view, in terms of the balance of power, if you are a Russian uh, you know, official bureaucrat work, working in the um, bureaucracy, how, how would you like to play? How do you want to see the game of balance of power played between Russia, China, and the United States. And do you expect that there will be some areas where Russia will run into direct conflict with China, and when will such a, you know, uh, uh, flares of conflict uh, occur? I think there is a great potential at the moment for increased cooperation between Russia and China. I think in many ways, the last decade or so has been a watershed in the relations, uh, hopefully getting away from uh, a past that has been troubled, uh, that has gone from unsustainable uh, forms of cooperation to immediate and intense conflict of the kind that Sergei Radchenko, who spoke earlier, has written so eloquently about. Um, but it depends on both sides, quite obviously. It depends on uh, a realistic approach from the Russian side with regard to China's interests, um, which is coming slowly. Uh, Russia wants China to treat it as a great power. But in reality, for China, Russia is first and foremost a provider of raw materials and will remain so, I think, for the next generation. Uh, now, of course, a great power can also be a provider of, of raw materials. But 
The problem here is in terms of how it impacts on the economic structure of the relationship, which will remain in this sense very, very uneven, very, very unequal in many ways, to use a, a term that's often been used about the, the Sino-Soviet relationship in the past. What can be done, particularly from the Russian perspective? Well, I think Russia needs to deepen its relationship with China uh, on, on, on many issues. Uh, maybe first and foremost in terms of the relationship to Central Asia and to the Central Asian republics. Um, I think at the moment there is a great deal of fear in Moscow that what China is really after to do, to oversimplify it, is to lure the new states in, in Central Asia, maybe even to some extent in the Caucasus, away from a close cooperation with Moscow and over to Beijing's orbit. That's a very old-fashioned kind of thinking in my view, in terms of multilateral politics. But it is certainly the fear in Moscow. I think instead what Moscow needs to do is to look at this zone as a zone of potential collaboration between China and, and Russia. And this is, this is what needs to happen now. Uh, this is not something that can be postponed because I think acute conflict could easily emerge in one or several of these uh, zones between Russia and, and China which could lead to an overall deterioration of the relationship between the two. So I want to see more concrete cooperation in security terms between Russia and China, not less as some people in the West are actually calling for. But I also want a more realistic approach from Moscow in terms of how the relationship is actually constructed. Well, we've almost reached the time for lunch, and I'm afraid there isn't time for more questions, and I want to take advantage of my position as the chair to have the last word. Um, the, both China and Russia, uh, in a way, need the United States more than they need each other. Um, at the same time, uh, we are, it, if you like, in a situation where the United States still remains the only superpower, but it has been weakened in a number of respects, and so what we find is that uh, we're moving towards uh, what uh, the Chinese for a long time have said is, is something they favor, is m multipolarity. And whether multipolarity is really such a good thing from a Chinese point of view, I think, is open to argument. Yes. But in the, in the case of Russia, clearly China is central to any uh, Russian uh, attempt to uh, es establish uh, the Eurasian identity which most Russians feel they have. But it means in order to do that, the Russians have to reach beyond China. They have to develop their pipeline not only to China, but they have to make it available to South Korea, to Japan, and maybe points beyond. The Russians are keen also to become members of the East Asian community. So there is, in a sense, an ambition in Russia to reach out further. And, um, and there are some interests they share in common with the Chinese, and there are some areas where they diverge. And um, I think that what we, have, what we have seen so far is despite Russian attempts to uh, try and have China and Russia and at certain stages India to combine together to exercise some sort of leverage over the United States, that hasn't worked so far, and I don't see it working 
in, in the future. So uh, what we're seeing in the immediate future is uh, China having to establish different kinds of relationships with the major powers around it because each one of these major powers is different in the way that it is a major power. You only have to think of Japan in comparison with India or in comparison with Russia and so on. So uh, it's a, become a much more complex set of, uh, of relationships and in a way there's still a tendency to look to the United States uh, to provide uh, where the, uh, uh, the basic framework within which these diverse relationships can take place. And uh, this means that uh, we are all caught up now in the way in which the Chinese authorities are going to address their need for change. And, and I'd just like to finish with this last observation, that at the heart of the view of the leadership is the necessity of maintaining the Communist Party in power. And that in itself shapes very much uh, what, they are, what are the limits within which they are prepared to envisage change. Uh, they have now institutionalized a form of succession which many Western observers used to think was the weak point. But I think in some respects you could say by institutionalizing it, they've created yet another weak point, And that is a degree of, of less flexibility than might have been true before. And, and that's a really big issue that has to be addressed within China. But having taken advantage of my chair, let me all invite you all now to, at Long Nows to go and enjoy your lunch. Thank you all very much for your attention. Thank you. And thank you also for Professor Westad for really starting us off in such an excellent way. Thank, thank you very you. much, Michael. Ladies and gentlemen, lunch will now be served in the Grand Ballroom. The afternoon session will start at 2 o'clock with Professor Lord Nicholas Stern session of his lecture will be climate change and economic growth. So lunch is served in the grand ballroom. Please make your way there now with the afternoon session starting at two o'clock. Thank you. <laughs>